go to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. This morning as we return to the Gospel of Matthew, we come to the account of Jesus' temptation or testing. And frankly, temptation is not a new subject to us. We've all been there and done that and often failed in a colossal way. But one of the greatest promises of the whole New Testament back in the book of Hebrews is that Christ Jesus, who sits at the right hand of the Father interceding for us today, is able to help us in our trials because he's been there. He's been tempted just like we are tempted. Well, here in Matthew 4, we have an account of three specific temptations which Jesus endured. These are not the only trials he endured, but these represent three kinds, three types of temptation which we also encounter. And so we'll look at it, and uh, we have three things to learn here from it. Let me read Matthew 4, the first 11 verses. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to, a high, uh, to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it, it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, <coughs> if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and the angels came and attended him. As you can see, there are three separate incidents, all types of temptation. And from there, I think we glean three principles that help us to know how to deal with temptation. The first is this. God's word takes precedence over our needs. God's word takes precedence or is more important than our needs. Probably more than generations before, before us, we are people in touch with our own needs. Not just our need of food and water and shelter, but our need for comfort and leisure our need for meaningful work and exciting time off, our need of a certain standard of living and a certain minimum of stress. Oh, we know what we need. But our text tells us, as impossible as it might seem in our day, that God's word is more necessary even than our greatest needs. That's what's going on here in verses 1 to 4. Jesus was in dire need. He hadn't eaten in over a month. This was not a matter of seeking a little culinary pleasure. He was facing the threat of starvation. But in contrast to Jesus' dire need stands the word of God. In the verse immediately preceding this incident, God had spoken from heaven 
and, and affirm Jesus' sonship, saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Okay, well, then God has spoken, and that's the end of it, right? Everything's okay. No matter how hungry Jesus might be at the moment, he's in good hands, and, and it's okay, right? Well, here's where the temptation comes. Satan comes to Jesus in verse 3, and he says, if you are the son of God, sounds like the, gar, the Garden of Eden. Has God really said, if you are the son of God, then turn these stones into bread. Now, in some sense, there might be nothing wrong with Jesus turning stones into bread that satisfies hunger. He's the son of God. He has power and authority to do creative things. Except that in verse 1, God himself put Jesus in this situation. The Spirit led him into the wilderness for the purpose of this trial. And now Jesus has set, Satan has set Jesus' needs against God's faithfulness to his word, against God's declared commitment to his son. Think of what, Je what Satan was suggesting. He was saying, you know, Jesus, you can't really rely on God's promises. He might have called you a son yesterday, but where is he now when you're so hungry? Why, you were starved to death out here waiting for God to keep his word. So Jesus was faced with a choice. Does he test the Father's promised care? Or does he take matters into his own hands as Satan has suggested would be safest? Well, Jesus understood that God's word takes precedence over our needs. So he responded in verse 4, It is written, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus is kind of reliving, reiterating, if you will, Israel's experience in the wilderness. They were in the wilderness 40 years. He's here 40 days. Uh, they both were desperate for bread. And in both cases, God had declared them to be his son. And in both cases, the question became, is the word of God, God's promise, sufficient for my needs? Can I really trust what God has said in my time of desperate need? You may recall that Israel responded by complaining with disbelief, bitterness. But Jesus, in faith, declared, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God, Jesus understood that God's word is more important than our hunger. Folks, you and I face the same kinds of temptations. We are so caught up in our needs. Our need for food and for comfort and security, our need for a sense of well-being, for pleasure, for self-esteem. And we labor to meet those needs. Our whole life's, uh, life is consumed with seeking to meet our own needs. But what do we do when God's word stands opposed to our sense of need. What do we do when we just must have something and the Lord says, no, no. What do we do when the needs we feel so strongly can only be satisfied by setting aside God's word? What do we do when the promises of God seem to fly in the face of what seems possible to us? What do we do when it seems that trusting and obeying God will bring us to bankruptcy or starvation 
or loneliness or obscurity or pain or death, then what do we do? Here the Lord teaches us to remember exactly how our Savior responded. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. God's word takes precedence over our needs. Or in your deepest hour of trial, in the midst of your terrible need, may you and I be able to say with Job, my foot has held fast to his path. I have kept his way and not turned aside. I have not departed from the command of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. In other words, like Jesus, Job said, and may we also say, I would starve to death before I would abandon or distrust or disobey God's word. For the word of God is more important, more necessary, takes precedence over all the needs that I feel. And sure enough, God did not forsake Jesus. We get the end of the passage in verse 11. When the testing was over, God sent angels to minister to his needs. Well, that was the first temptation, but there's a second. And the second truth to learn, and that truth is this. We don't test God. He tests us. We don't test God. He tests us. Years ago, I heard a young minister, an ignorant young minister, I might say, Say, don't be afraid to challenge God. He has promised to provide and meet your needs. Don't hesitate to force him into a position where he must do so. To do anything less is a lack of faith. Hmm, what about that kind of attitude? It's actually quite prevalent in our day, you know. We hear people say, God wants you to be affluent and healthy and happy. And, and fulfilled, don't settle for less. Claim it, it's yours. And we certainly want to be people of faith. But is this what we should be doing? Is this how biblical faith expresses itself? That was the issue in the second temptation of Jesus here in verses 5 to 7. Here God's promises are set against our responsibility. Here the temptation is to lay aside our responsibility to be faithful under pressure and instead use God's promises as if they were my rights to be demanded. Folks, we don't test God. He tests us. Look at what happened. We're not told all the details. Somehow Jesus was taken to the pinnacle of the temple, probably the southeast corner of the roof of the royal cloister, from there, it was 326 feet down to the bottom of the valley of uh, the Kidron Valley, which lay before it. And there, Satan quoted scripture to Jesus. Did you know Satan could use the Bible to tempt you? He's a sneaky devil. Specifically, Satan quoted from Psalm 91 this wonderful psalm. Has God not provided, promised angelic protection? He has. And are you not the son of God? And Jesus is. Then throw yourself off this high place 
and give God the opportunity to perform by sending rescuing angels. Don't insult God by just standing there. Treat him like God. Trust him for the impossible. Oh, this is so subtle. May God give us wisdom to sort out what is bold faith and what is pure presumption. So how did Jesus respond? Well, he answered in verse 7, it is also written, I can quote scripture too, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus said, in effect, this is a question of sovereignty, Satan. Who is in charge of whom? You see, says Jesus, I don't test the Father. He tests me. I don't put him on trial, though he may put me on trial if he pleases. The Father doesn't have to perform at my command. I have to keep his commands. <coughs> his promises are not my rights. They're not magical potions at my disposal. No, I am at his disposal. He has rights over me. I am responsible to him, and his promises never nullify that fact. In other words, I don't test God. He tests me. And we see that in the clearest light when we look at the Old Testament passage from which Jesus quotes. In Deuteronomy 6.16, we read, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massah. So what happened at Massah? Well, that was the place where God miraculously caused a spring of water to come out of the rock to give his people the, uh, to quench their thirst. Boy, that must have been a glorious day of faith, huh? How the people must have trusted God that day. What promises they must have claimed. What awesome faith they must have displayed to see this miracle from the hand of God, right? No, wrong. In Exodus 17, 7, we read, and he named the place Massah, which means test, and Meribah, which means quarrel, because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel and because they tested the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us or not? That day in the wilderness was not a day of faith and victory. It was a day of colossal sin. These people challenged the integrity of God who had promised to be with him. And he says, is he really here or not? Prove it. They threw God's promises in his face and demanded that he prove himself to them. I tremble to think of such a thing. Daring to contend with the creator. Oh, on that day, God obliged them. He did a wonderful miracle and the water flowed from the rock and filled their stomachs. But God was not pleased with them. Those people died in the desert in unbelief. And now Matthew 4. The true Son of God is in the wilderness. The pure Israelite is in the wilderness. And he is faced with the same kind of test. He has all the promises of God. Why not use them to force God to rescue him in midair as he casts himself from the temple? No, Jesus' reply was much different. He said, no, 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 Satan. My father is not on trial here. I am. My father's faithfulness is not in question. He is always faithful. 
It is my faithfulness that's being tested, and I intend to be faithful to it. The society in which we live demands its rights at every hand. It seems to be true in every segment of our, of our society. People demanding rights. Rights that have often been thought of privileges. And that attitude has infected the church. Or we baptize it, baptize it and make it sound so pious, but it's the same old thing. I have my rights. God has made promises to me, and I expect him to fulfill them. I refuse to endure testing unless he proves himself first by doing what he said he was going to do for me. But I remind you this morning, we do not have the right to put God on trial. Whether we understand him or not, whether his ways are mysterious or not, we don't test God. He tests in that hour, we have the responsibility to be faithful, just as Jesus is faithful for our sake. We'll find there's one more temptation and one more truth to ponder, and that's this. Don't sell your soul for success. Don't sell your soul for success. We tend to be people consumed with a desire for success. We want results, measurable results. Every part of our life, we want results. But this third temptation teaches us that results are not everything. Success is not everything. Faithfulness matters to God more than our success. Consider what was happening here in verses 8 to 10 as this third temptation. Christ Jesus came into the goal with the highest he came into the world with the highest conceivable goal. To bring the world under his authority, to build his kingdom in order to hand it over to the Father at the appropriate time. He was born king of the Jews. The promise of the throne of David was his. His kingdom must be established. That goal is his destiny. But then Satan approached Jesus with an offer in verse 9. I'll tell you what, Jesus, I will give you... I will give you all the kingdoms of the world if you'll worship me. Now, don't think Satan was trying to sell him something that he couldn't deliver. Oh, no. The world was firmly in the hands of Satan's control. Adam, by his one great act of treason, had handed God's world in the hands of God's enemy, who has since then been leading a rebellion against the Creator. And now Satan comes and offers Jesus a deal. Looking ahead, Jesus could see the long, arduous road that was going to lead at the cross, end at the cross. And here is an easy way out. Here is instant success in the very thing God sent him to do, to build a kingdom. He would regain the kingdoms of the world instantly and painlessly. All it would cost was one little transgression. He's not being asked to disgrace himself in the temple in front of everyone. No one will ever know they're out in the wilderness. It's just Satan and Jesus. 
Just one little token bending of the knee, just enough to acknowledge Satan's rule. I tremble at the thought of being in that situation. You're so accustomed to compromise, I think our knees would be on the ground before we could think about it. After all, it's only worship that's being sold away. But Jesus would have none of it. Once again, he quotes from Deuteronomy. It is written, he says, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. No matter how inviting it might look, no matter how certain the promised success, Jesus will not worship anyone but the Father. He will not sell his soul for success not even the seeming success of God's work. Think about that, folks. Success versus worship. That's the issue. Don't you realize we face temptations where the issue is exactly the same? Success versus worship. How important is faithful, single-minded worship of the Lord. Does it really consume our life? Is, is, is it the bedrock of what we're about that cannot be questioned? Or another way of saying it would, would be, what does it take to make you leave it, let it aside? What does it take on a given day to keep you from that worship of the Lord? Don't sell your soul for success, your business, your family, your social life, your image before your friends. These things are not worth comparing with your devotion to the Lord. Strangely, whole churches face this issue in our day. Churches want to be successful too. The goal is growth. Church growth is everything these days. But interestingly, you know what the cost is? Worship. For 2,000 years, the church has met on the first day of the week to, to celebrate Christ's resurrection and worship him. And now suddenly that element of church life is uh, fading away a bit for the sake of performances programs which appeal to greater numbers that the church may be successful in its growth. In other words, God's goals are being pursued at the expense of God himself. No. Don't sell your soul for success. Oh, but something even greater was at stake in this temptation. Well, you see, there, in spite of Satan's offer, there could never be a real fulfillment of God's plan without the cross. Sure, Jesus could set up a kingdom by force, but in order for it to be a righteous kingdom, he must at some point purge every sinner from the kingdom. And how could he establish a righteous kingdom? Who would be left to participate in it if he purged every sinner? It was only possible one way, and that is by God's ingenious plan of salvation. The spotless Son of God must live in righteous obedience. He must be faithful all the way to death on the cross. 
And, and by his death, he becomes the sin bearer who makes atonement for sinners. He takes the punishment that we deserve so that when God raises him from the dead, he's able to bring many forgiven sinners into this righteous kingdom. And then and only then can his kingdom be established. Anything less than the salvation of God's chosen ones is no success at all. You see, Jesus could not shirk back from the cross taking an easier way. For even if he successfully gained all the kingdoms of the world, he has to turn around and destroy them all in the judgment. There could be no true success of God's plan except by God's way. In a similar way, God has not called us to success but faithfulness. We're called to suffer with Christ, not wield power. We're called to obedient devotion, not dazzling results. We're called to worship him, not market him as a product. Don't sell your soul for success. This morning, I said before you, the glory and grace of the Lord Jesus. He has been faithful when we have not been. He has perfectly resisted temptation when we have succumbed. And by his faithful obedience all the way to death, God now forgives our sins and gives us eternal life. Jesus has done what we could never do for ourselves. He is our only hope. He deserves our unswerving obedience and allegiance. He alone can reconcile us to the Father. But Jesus didn't just accomplish this salvation for us so that then we could go on failing. He has also shown us how to live out the victory over sin uh, which he purchased for us. In that sense, this account of his temptation provides us then three models for faithfulness. Model one, when our needs are set against God's word, which will be served. Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. God's word must take precedence over our needs. Second model. When we begin to consider God's promises, our rights, and then set them against God's commands, which should be served? Jesus said, you will not tempt the Lord your God. We don't test God. He tests us. And the third model, when our success is set against our responsibility to worship the Lord first and foremost, which will we abandon? Jesus says, worship the Lord and serve him only. Don't sell your soul for success. Amen.